0: Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we have a very, very special episode because we have some special guests on today that will help us talk a little bit about the films that we have selected in this very exciting episode, which has a theme connected to villainy. So we're going to look at villains and our special guests are Max and Patrick. Hello. 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 It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Why would you want to be on our podcast? What what do you what are you where are you from and what do you bring to us?
2: Um, all right. So my name is Max and I've always wanted to be a part of this podcast since you guys started. And it's been really awesome listening to all your insights, all your stories. I'm a movie fanatic. Um, I will say I'm not as profound of a movie fanatic in the sense of you guys but I will say I love 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 movies and I think I'm just excited specifically about villains I think I'm glad to be a part of this one here because you know I'm a big action freak so I love action movies those are tend to be the the things that hit me and anytime a villain is a part of it it becomes an exciting experience for me so that's me I I I'm also also your student Gibson and uh very excited now to in this next stage of us uh, working together in a way.
0: I hope you get better grades in this process than you did with him as a student. I was good. All right, well, I'm Patrick, uh,
3: also former student of Don Gibson. So that's, I guess, the context behind how we know each other and why we're here. Uh, we used to study film with Don, and he's inspired a passion and a love for it that we've carried forward into our post-galactic years. And it's just been a great opportunity uh, to be a part of the podcast, which we've both been listening to and participating in, in the ways that we can. So, yeah, really excited.
0: Well, thank you guys for coming on. We're excited. They did. They have contributed. They Our very interesting uh, graphic of Cinema Around the Corner was created by either, was it Patrick or Max, Max. or Wolf? Max. all mm-hmm. right max thank you very much for that and you guys can see that whenever you go to uh, any of the places where a podcast would be available that you would see our graphic which is very professional it's the most professional part of our podcast probably is this graphic so we thank no, you for that of max.
2: course we should do more
0: stuff we should definitely do more stuff merch absolutely let's see how this episode goes then we can talk all <laughs> right so uh, we're moving on to our selections today we have selected two films from the 70s is the decade that we picked to look at these particular films and the villains uh, that we see woven into the films. And our first film uh, was selected by Don. And Don, why don't you go ahead and introduce that film for us?
1: Well, the film is uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, directed by Milos Forman from 75. It's based on a novel by Ken Kesey, essentially about what it was like to be in a mental institution in the 60s. So the story is of a character named Randall McMurphy, who's played by Jack Nicholson, and he arrives in the insane asylum, or I guess, mental institution. And the reason he's there, we're, we're questioning it, he seems like kind of just a petty crook, he doesn't seem to have any mental issues whatsoever, except he obviously keeps getting into criminal activity like stealing and robbing. And, I think cetera. he was, uh,
0: wasn't it rape? He was, he was a, he raped a 15 year old.
1: You know, yes, he was convicted also of rape. Um, but he's just basically a small town kind of hoodlum character. And so our understanding is that he doesn't like being in jail because it's, it's really unpleasant there, obviously. And he's got to do a lot of work. And he figures I just act crazy. They send me to a mental institution and I could just put serve up my time there. And so that's the story of a guy that seems sort of regular, no real mental issues. And he shows up uh, in asylum. Um, so in the asylum, uh, we see a lot of great characters, um, the patients in the asylum. And they're just marvelous. There's a guy named Charlie Cheswick that gets really upset all the time and Billy Bibbit who has a terrible stammer and Dale Harding and Max Tabor played by Christopher Lloyd and Martini played by Danny DeVito, as well as the, this character named chief Bromden, who is a very large, very tall native American. And in the book by Ken Kesey, the the story is actually told from his perspective. So it's about him interacting with all these people and it's all about what it is to be crazy and and how is crazy. And we see him interacting and they just seem like normal people, although they seem to have pretty intense episodes where they get pretty upset. But the character in it that is, that's absolutely fascinating is Nurse Ratchet, who runs this uh, portion of the mental institution. And play, she's played by uh, an actor named Louise Fletcher, who she won the Oscar for this role, as J- Jack Nicholson did also uh, for his role, and the film by Mila Fillmore. and he, he won Best uh, Director, and it won Best Screenplay, and it also won Best Pictures. So it was one of those films that did phenomenally well at the, at the Oscars. So Nurse Ratchet is a fascinating character. Actually, before I get into that, does anyone else want to comment on anything about the film before we start talking about our, our villain?
0: You know, I, I just want to point out that, uh, you know, it was filmed in Oregon, Insane Asylum, for also for the Criminally Insane, and the connections to that are, are very strong because that's where Ken Kesey's from as well, is, is he's from Oregon. And I'm, I, I have a strong connection to Oregon, and so I always felt fascinated by the fact that they actually used a lot of backgrounds of Oregon. And, and you know, this is not the first film that Jack Nicholson... Would would end up coming back to Oregon for when he shot uh, the Shining, which was filmed at Mount Hood uh, up in Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood. So there you know, Jack Nicholson has a strong connection to to shooting I think, films. I and, think
1: he also shot five easy pieces, uh, five easy pieces up there too.
0: Oh, did he? I didn't know that. So yeah. so there's a strong connection to Oregon and Jack Nicholson. I've always I always felt.
1: Yeah, and you also mentioned Ken Kesey. Uh, well, I mentioned him briefly. Ken Kesey got really upset in the middle of production. Uh, he didn't think the, the film was faithful to his novel at all. I can see his point. I've read the novel; it's a great novel. They take a lot of Chief Bromden's character, who tells the story. They take a lot of him out, where he, he's kind of put to the side. He becomes important later on. We don't really see his perspective, and he didn't like how it, the film was made and made a little bit mainstream. So he actually left the production in the middle of shooting.
0: And I just want to add, too, that this this film took a long time to make. I mean, it was a very successful Broadway play. uh, And then the Douglas family, um, Kirk Douglas and then Michael Douglas were actually the backers of trying to get this made as a film. And it took so long that eventually I think Kirk Douglas kind of stepped away and Michael Douglas uh, picked it up. And a lot of the um, actors that were in the film were also in the play and, and some of the roles that you see we were very similar, like Danny DeVito, who's one of the Michael Douglas's closest personal friends, was very much uh, a strong character, both in the play and in the film.
1: And he's awesome as Martini. I I love that character.
3: Mm -hmm. Mr. Martini. Yeah, it's really interesting that you that uh, um, I didn't realize that it was the book was written from the perspective of the chief, because Really, it sort of seems like there's a relationship between the Chief and McMurphy that is kind of, this might be wrong, but shoehorned in at the end, I suppose. Like, there's obviously something developing and building over the course of the film, but the relationship that they establish at the end of the film seems like maybe an answer to that you know the fact that the the author was thinking it wasn't quite as authentic and all of a sudden this chief character becomes more important because you can kind of see individual characters being fleshed out and developed like um Billy and stuff so i i figure the chief would just sort of it's more of a personality thing than it actually it being you know him being a central character or a main character
1: the interesting thing is that chief Robin saw himself in Uh, McMurphy and McMurphy fighting the system etc and of course in the end he's inspired he's the one that of course flies over the cuckoo's nest he leaves um so he uses that as an inspiration but and you know this film there's a little bit of a dated aspect too because the way they treat Native American issues which is really well developed in the book is just kind of a a side issue here and there's pretty hardcore racism um with the the attendance the all the all the guys that work in the facility they're all black And the way uh, McMurphy talks to them is pretty intense, and it's very based on racist language. And, you know, it's grounded in the time, so it's a story of the time. But when you watch it, there's a kind of a few interactions that you're a little, it's a little bit uncomfortable, especially given today's, you know.
0: You know, the thing is that Oregon is historically, it's been a a state that was based off, off kind of racist views. I mean, the, the whole idea of moving to Oregon was a whites-only experience. Um, they, they tried to make a state between Southern Oregon and Northern California called Jefferson State, which was going to be like a you know, post-Civil War kind of white haven. And so there's a strong racist value system that historically has been woven into the oregon culture and it's a very it's not a diverse state with the exception of portland most of the state is just entirely white uh, in in its history And, and now there's you know other groups still a lot of latins are there because of the farming and things of that nature but yeah. for the most part it has a strong kind of historical white yeah. value system and you can kind of sense that in because you know essentially mcmurphy is a farm boy from oregon who kind of goes wrong
1: and and the character chief brown in in the book he's very clearly developed his father who was a very powerful strong man um he's destroyed by white culture and the, the native society is destroyed and, and, and he, you know, his father becomes a horrible alcoholic. And so uh, who is a very intimidating, large man, just like this character in the, in the film. And so that idea of racism and how a white racist society can crush whatever culture that's not them is very much in the book. And it's kind of a background issue in the film. It's not as clearly developed.
3: Mm. Interesting that the the character of McMurphy who's who's clearly got some pretty background. is the one that kind of inspires the chief at the end of the film as well, that he's the source of this inspiration of a reminder that he can escape. And, you know, there's this very strong bond that's formed at the end of the film. So kind of, he's the one who, uh, who yeah, like a mountain, I think he says, make me feel like a mountain.
1: Yeah. So we have to talk about Nurse Ratchet. That's what we're going to focus on. I think Nurse Ratchet not only is the greatest villain of the 1970s, I think she could compete for the greatest villain of all time in cinema history. That's how strongly I feel about Nurse Ratchet. And this is gonna sound weird, but she reminds me a lot of my mother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that can explain a lot, Don. That can it does a explain a lot.
1: But uh, so I just want to so Nurse Ratchet is a phenomenal character. She never raises her voice. She never changes her demeanor. She always looks perfect. Like, she's got, she's perfectly dressed in this white uniform, of course, and so she's got this nurse's cap that is exactly placed on her perfectly coiffed hair at all time. She always looks at people, never, no, completely an ex- expressionist, barely blinks, as I said, never loses her temper. There's a moment where, so this character, Billy, he ends up killing himself, and she kind of cracks a tiny bit at that moment because we all realize it and she kind of, well, I don't know if she realizes it, but something she said, Billy ended up sleep, sleeping with a prostitute in the, uh, in the ward. And he's feel, and he loses his, it's a great moment in the film. He's got a horrible s- s- stammer and he can't say words and it drives you crazy. And then after he has sex with this girl, it's not like a, it's a sexual thing, but it's kind of a passionate thing. And he really, obviously it means a lot to him. And he comes out, he doesn't stammer a single word. And yeah. then he yeah. looks back at him and he says, You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. <laughs> and it's lines like that and it's situations like that that are just phenomenal. Like she's just so cold hearted and she, nothing phased. She's, as I said, maybe phased for like a second when she sees Billy's dead. There's blood everywhere. But then she's not thinking it's her fault. She's thinking, It's something else. And then Jack Nicholson's character, McMurphy, he tries to choke her to death. She doesn't even really react there. She just is sort of like, she's choking she's dying, but she's not really fighting or screaming. She just slowly, like this, it's like Frankenstein slowly being killed. She's not killed because I don't think anything could kill (laughs) Nurse Ratchet. Anyway, so that whole, I think, you know, she could stare down any Avengers villain. I don't care what superpower you have. She would just look back, at them and they would say I'm sorry I made a mistake and they would leave
2: here's my thoughts on on her because I think Nurse Ratched is a really interesting character because I don't think she's as much of a villain in the way that you say I think that she is she actually she seems to actually care about her patients in a way and whether it is strict or extremely like severe you can tell that she cares and and she knows all their details she knows all about them and what their characters are like and what their you know intentions are, and and she can manage you know her her entire ward essentially pretty well, right? I think that where she turns a little bit into a villain is you can tell she's drunk on power in a way, and she's uh, she she's loving it, and she doesn't flinch like you said. She doesn't because she's trying to control as much as she can using the rules, ruining what she you know, being very like OCD in a way of everything that happens in the ward, but you can tell even that moment you just said with uh, I for, i'm sorry i forgot his name the kid that's billy. billy how he's you know she's talking about his mother and everything she, she seems to care about him and she wants the best intention maybe but it comes off so cold-hearted and just evil but it, i feel like that's not really who she's trying to be and that's she has a shell around herself and that's why you're saying she cracks she cracks almost in that moment where she sees him dead
1: and that's the thing. The very fact, like she might care. I mean, that's her mastery. Cause I think the only, and you wonder what her per, private life is. I think she just, she lives in a tiny little apartment and she just has like dinners and she just quietly eats her, looks out the window. She could never be in a relationship with anybody mm-hmm. and she, and she comes and she runs this ward and she runs all the meetings that she has. Everybody, there's a great situation when, when uh, McMurphy wants to put the world series on And she just pulls the rug out of him because the first time no one will do it because they're used to being kowtowed by her power. And then the second time he says, you know, for the second game, he he convinces them because he's got all this crazy energy. Basically, all nine the people in the group agree. And then she says, ah, but Mr. McMurphy, there's nine other people in the ward and all nine other people are either deaf or they got severe mental issues. They're not, they're not, they're non-communicative and they can't communicate. And so she says, oh, there's nine other people. And so it's not a majority and it's that mastery. And then of course, in the end, he, he, he gets, sheep Broden to raise his hand, but it's three minutes after the meeting's over. And she says, well, the meeting adjourned, I'm sorry. And it's that mastery of like, I'm, I want to take care of you, but no one can do things in a different way with her.
2: It's an incredible composure almost, you know, everything that she does is in complete composure. Even the moment, that moment at the end where she comes back and there's the chaos all over the ward, She's just very calm. She's asking, close the window, make sure everybody's here. While everybody's just like pissed drunk on the floor, hungover, you know, there's, yeah. it's,
0: it's amazing. It's
2: really an amazing character, you're right.
0: I think, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the power dynamic of the film. And I think that's a big center piece of this is that, you know, she'd never, it seems like in the history of understanding the operation of that ward, she'd never truly been challenged in regards to her own power. And I think her response to that is to clamp down even more, uh, as we first see in her first response is to challenge you know, him directly. But then as she realizes that she has to operate at a different level with him, because he does have that charismatic power within the ward, she starts to use that kind of passive aggressive psychological warfare, that eventually, uh, she's able to have the power of the asylum, and being able to use the power of the asylum as an institution against him that he was never going to win, and that she eventually, you know, gets to that ultimate victory which is to basically destroy him as a functional human, as we see at the end. And then, you know, the chief recognizes that it's been an ultimate defeat. He, he does the final, you know, kindness to, to his friend, which is probably what he would have wanted. And we see such an interesting dynamic of how that's woven through the film. And, and, these, and it's almost like the scenes are battles between, you know, indirectly or directly between her and McMurphy. The whole time you almost get the sense that you know that no matter what's going to happen, you know how it's going to play out almost. It feels like so well written in the plot. And, and it just, it gives you that opportunity of, of a tiny ounce of hope. But in the end, you kind of like, oh man, this isn't going to end well.
1: I like what you said about the power dynamics because that really is what this film is about. And it's interesting because, you know, she's a woman and she's working in a medical facility and everybody above her, the, there's doctors, there's the guy that runs the hospital. This company, they have a meeting. They all realize McMurphy's just there because he's trying to, he just wants to have an easy last few days in his on his term. He doesn't realize that when he leaves jail, it's not a finite thing anymore. Now, Nurse Ratchet controls when he'll be released. And he didn't realize until the moment. And so they have this meeting. They all agree that he really should be sent back to prison in Pendleton. And then her response is, well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back or we send him to the Disturb War, it's just one more way of passing on a problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. So I'd like to keep him. I think we can help him. And I just... For me, those words are just like, I control this guy and I don't want anyone else yet because I'm going to win this and she is going to win it because she's in charge.
0: In that meeting, you see her institutional power, too, because all she gets what she wants with those doctors as well. I mean, they, they They're scared
1: shameless of her.
0: Yeah. I mean, she is just ultimately, you know, she's got that institutional history with the place that even those doctors are all like, yeah, okay, you know, this is not the battle to fight. You know, it's just one person. Yeah. Let her have what she wants.
3: I think um, it's interesting because having not seen the film as it was playing out, I imagined the plot was going to be about him becoming uh, McMurphy being increasingly convinced of his own psychosis and questioning whether or not he was actually sane. And I thought that maybe that's how that dynamic would play out was that they'd give him the pills, or they'd force him the pills. And it would, you know, even if he'd started off not quote unquote crazy, Uh, by the end of it, it would sort of be a psychological thriller in a sense where he'd be questioning his own sanity and, and, you know, it turns out that he is crazy. I thought there would be some kind of a twist. I'm glad that there wasn't. I'm really glad that there wasn't because now that seems really cheesy. There was acknowledgement throughout the film that he is not crazy, that he's sane, but he's clearly got some issues. And there was never an attempt to sort of classify him like the other inmates by her or, or the patients like by her or the other uh, doctors and people in the facility. So I feel like that entire, the entire point of, of having him there was that element of control was reigning in this, this wild card without any kind of notion of, you know, needing to actually make him better or, or, you know, or address any of his criminal proclivities or his just natural craziness, you know? So it, I just found it interesting because I, I figured that he'd he'd be the subject of some kind of intense psychoanalysis or there'd be something about his mental state that's being questioned but realistically there's only little snippets throughout where they're sort of saying, no, he's definitely not crazy, we know he's not crazy why is he here? Um, and it's Nurse Ratchet who's insisting, like you said that he stays.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because this this film, one of the ideas that's being pursued, if you're emotional and, you know, you get dramatic about things, somehow that that pushes you down this idea of you know, having mental instability. And she has absolutely no emotional range. She's exactly the same way all the time, which to me implies that the craziest person in the film, maybe even Nurse Ratchet, because she's just so contained and she doesn't live her life. I mean, she just comes to the ward. The opening sequence when she comes in, it's just a series of good mornings. She says good morning to every single person the exact same way. Clearly has no relationship, like as a friend with anybody. And this is what she does. And I love that idea of what is crazy. And I think it's explored really well on the film.
2: And to add to that, I think that's also why McMurphy, you know, changes constantly and I'm, I'm ready to escape. I'm ready to go, I'm ready to get out of here. I've got the plan ready. I'm, I'm leaving today, but he never actually does because I think he starts to build his intense conscious of like, this place is actually great. And I want to help these people get out of here. I want to help them. I want to be a part of them. Nurse Nurse Ratched's going to kill them, essentially. It was so frustrating. It was like three or four moments where the window was just in
3: front of them, mm-hmm. ready to escape. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I think we covered this film very well. I think we've identified there is very little question of who the villain was for a lot of us in regards to the, the power dynamic of this film. I mean, as we kind of reflect on how we discuss this, we look at this kind of you know almost like a totalitarian relationship in, within the system. The idea of like a, a Stalin-like leader that it has you know very real power, but then also has this, this other level of power that it's kind of... Unrecognized, but it's there and, and nobody questions it. And that, you know, that really shows to me the institutional backing of, you know, this reflects how a lot of these institutions are run today. I think that there are, you know, very little rights for the patients probably. And that once they're in there, you know, they are just at the will of the people who are running those institutions. And if you get a person like a nurse ratchet, then, you know, that you are just a very unlucky situation. And these things happen. Yeah.
1: I guess the only difference now is instead of shock therapy, it's all heavy meds.
0: Yeah, maybe I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's very cyclical. Sometimes it comes back, you know, because they say, "Oh, you know, deeply depressive people can be reset now by, yeah. you know, shock therapy." So I think there's. It's just probably not as brutal as it was back then, but it's probably still there. I don't know. Uh, have any of you actually been institutionalized? No, ben, t- tell us about your your three year stint. let's 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 keep the let's let's keep it up let's keep it up all right so our next film um, the boys picked it was a classic film of the 70s and it's uh has a one-word title called jaws and why don't you guys talk a little bit about why you chose that and a little bit about the film jaws is iconic isn't it i mean
2: we've all i'm I'm sure most of our audiences the audience here has watched jaws but jaws is Really an incredible story. I just found out it was all filmed in Martha's Vineyard, which I did not know. It's an incredible story about a beautiful summer beach town. Everybody is preparing in this small local town. Everybody knows each other. They're preparing for an incredible uh, summer full of tourism and beach and swimming. Long behold, a shark, a great white shark, massive one appears and uh, terrorizes the town. This causes the local sheriff who is, I forgot his name, Oh, Brody, Brody, who's the sheriff and chief police, chief of police? I don't think he's the sheriff. Who basically is in this battle between uh, hunting the shark, dealing with with the mayor, Vog, Mayor Vog, Vaughn? Oh, is it Vaughn? Bon? Vaughn, bon, sorry, Vaughn, bon. to shut down the beach or not? And it's a whole like you know, it's a fight against the government of the town and also a fight against killing the shark before it terrorizes the town even further.
3: Yeah, so in terms of the villain, the obvious would be the shark, right? But I think what's really interesting about this film is that there is this question about who is the villain? Is it the mayor? Is it the shark? And I guess more modern take on the film, which is like the real villain being, you know, Humans kind of encroaching on sharks' territory, and and whether or not the shark is just doing what sharks do, and so yeah, it's, it it raises a lot of interesting questions about the concept of the villain, and obviously the fact that you don't really see the shark until the very end of the film as well. That build up, that famous, you know, not knowing that <clears throat> Max actually was the one who gave me some trivia about why the shark, so, why you only see it at the end of the film.
2: So there is some trivia about it. I know that. Spielberg, who directed the movie, was when we was working on making the shark. They actually built like a robotic shark, and it was all under wraps because you know Spielberg was big. He just I think he just did ET maybe before Sugarland Express. I think was his, the film that he did. Was that the used? film before. him? Well, he was infamous. He was famous. He, everybody knew who he was, and there was journalists who you know ended up getting a shot of this mechanical shark. And Spielberg, who you know justifiably was very upset that this got revealed had to figure out a way to do this so that, you know, he didn't give uh, the journalism, the uh, the journalists, kind of the satisfaction that they they caught him. So, you know, for the first, like, two-thirds of the movie, anytime that there's a shark footage, there's no actual footage of the shark. It's all water shots. It's all that, you know, the music. Da-dun, 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 da-dun. And uh, that kind of became a staple because of the suspense that it builds, right?
0: Uh, this silence of
2: not... you know. It's, it- it's interesting
0: make- that you, you bring this up because I read a completely different reason for this and it was all financial. They uh, This really? was the first major film that was shot on the ocean in this way and uh, it was just, just riddled with problems uh, that the robotic shark was malfunctioning constantly. It cost them, the whole thing was over budget. It was a nightmare. So they, because of the financial implications of trying to keep this robotic shark in the film and also stay on budget with with using you know trying to use the ocean and everything that they just decided to go with the strategy of minimizing the the presence of the shark and using the music and you know a little bit of like the fin and the one you know just little teasers of to because because it was just costing them too much money to try and replicate the the first vision of the film which was to have the shark be much more of a a, a visible character in the in the film.
2: Could have been a mix of both then. That makes much more sense though, financial reason. I mean, it's all production at the end of the day. It's like, they tried to stop it from spreading. They tried, it was too expensive, like you said. That makes a lot of sense, but it's so amazing how such a decision caused it such an iconic well, It worked,
0: it, whatever, whatever the reasoning, the film worked the way it it's worked. It, worked. It, it,
2: I think it sets a precedent
1: that many films have followed since. Alien came out, I think three years later. And it's the same concept. We never see the alien. We see it quite a bit in the end. It's a space movie, but it's the same thing. We don't see this thing. We just see, we hear it and we see tiny little shadows of it. And then in the end it's revealed and it's the same. And it's Hitchcock said this: it's it's so much better to use our imagination than to, you know, to actually see the thing and now that because of cgi and everything the tendency is they just want to show every crazy thing they possibly can and it's a shame because you know you want as you said if you watch jaws now jaws was made almost 50 years ago and it holds up incredibly well and you don't have to have cgi sharks there was a film called deep blue sea i don't know if anyone saw that and there was all cgi sharks in it. it was like 20 years ago with samuel jackson and we see the sharks constantly and they're all rendered but it's not nearly as interesting as not seeing the shark. And that's what these
0: guys figured out. That you brought up Hitchcock, you know, that's definitely an influence on this film. I think Hitchcock was a big influence on how they decided to shoot this film and, and the style that they use. Because, I, you know, there was definitely a psycho vibe in regards to like the, the shark coming or not coming or attacking or not. And just, you know, the, the audience was on their edge. Uh, for much of the film in regards to that anxiety of the shark and the other thing that you brought up is that this was really marketed in the first kind of Hollywood blockbuster style. Jaws is often considered that first Hollywood blockbuster and you know it immediately following this film was Star Wars and that obviously took it to the next level but that style of cross merchandising and and massive television and all these things that they, they used was one of the iconic historical impacts of this movie is it's marketing as the first, you know, Hollywood summer blockbuster.
1: Yeah. So one of the iconic scenes for me and John, obviously the opening sequence is amazing when poor Chrissy goes swimming and then, um, you know, and then there's this horrible scene of her screaming and gasping and then she vanishes. So that's really good. But there's also the, one of the two older, I guess, drunk guys that have the big ham and then they just, they put this ham, it's like a dinner, it's a big dinner they're going to have. And they just put on a huge hook and they throw it in the ocean. And they're like, oh, we're going to catch a shark. And we're like, okay, a couple of idiot guys that are stupid hunting the shark. But then they're sitting there. And then suddenly the, the chain starts running out and then fixed to the dock. And it pulls part of the dock off. And one of the guys is on the dock. And he, he starts floating out. And then it was like, oh my God, and he jumps off the dock. And he swims back to, you know, the uh, get to safety and the shark not eat him. The whole thing, we never see the shark. We just hear the music and we just see t- close-ups of his scurrying boots and all this great, and cutting back and forth between, oh, and, and we don't see the shark, but we just see the dock floating. Because the, dock, the dock's floating out with the ham and then he's in the water thrashing around and the dock slowly turns around and comes back. The whole sequence, there's no shark, there's nothing there. And it's done because... It's, that's the mastery. And I'd say it's one of the most terrifying scenes because we never see it. And then, and then the guy gets out and then the music fades away and the dock kind of bumps up to the shore and the scene's over. Mastery. The shark is not the villain. The shark is just yeah. doing his job. It's just eating stuff. That's what sharks do. The yeah. villain is, is, is Mayor Vaughn. That guy yeah. is greed and capitalistic. And he's the guy that basically fed the people to the sharks.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say that the, the villain in this film is capitalism. I, I think that, you know, that's, that's the true, <laughs> you know, it, that, that's it the is. true villain of this. The need to to survive at, in, in a, a market economy where tourism is by far a do or die for a town like this, that the sense of capitalism forcing them to make these decisions is really the, the villain in this film. And then if you if you take that even further and you kind of connect this to the ideas of the drive to dis, uh, and you touched on this a little bit, that the environment is not as important as the need to make money and capitalism. And that connects very strongly to this movie in a way, because, you know, as we see the introduction of the need to consider the environment, that's something that we that was moved through the 70s a little bit but it was never something that you would see in a mainstream film except for say uh you know disaster films like jaws or or what was the movie we we did about the, the the power plant that blew up china syndrome yeah the china syndrome these types of films where they connect you know the message to this terrible disaster that's the only time that we see like a really need to be concerned about the environment was to really freak people out in this you know anxiety driven state of whatever the film happened to be about and jaws to me was was a, was a very much a connection to the, the need to remeasure our value system in regards to capitalism versus the environment or whatever you want to call it, you know? So the uh-huh. villain is greed and capitalism.
1: Oh, the irony. Jaws, the most successful film of the 1970s, <laughs> before Star Wars, and the enemy of the enemy
3: is, is greed. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, like, I I have a a bit of a relationship to it and a bit of a relationship to sharks as an Australian and as an Australian who used to live by the beach where there were sharks and where there were shark attacks. And I suppose, like, again, looking at it from that modern perspective, you can kind of imagine any other film where there's this killer animal, be it a bear or a shark or whatever, where the objective of the film is, we got to kill this thing. It's going crazy. It's killing all these people, whatever is happening. And the solution is we need to to kill this shark. We need to get rid of it. The discussions that are happening right now in Australia about shark attacks, which are on the rise as as the waters are heating up and sharks having to travel further for food is what to do about sharks because it is their natural habitat and we're coming into it. And through the, you know, actions of humans broadly around the world, they're being forced further and further to cohabitate. And so there's this kind of debate about the shark, the shark nets that they want to install, but all the problems that are associated with them. And like airlifting the sharks, which you obviously could not do with Jaws because he is ginormous. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, the first thing um, that they think of and the only they're single-mindedly thinking of is just we got to kill this thing. we gotta, we got to, you know, get rid of it, shoot it, blow it up um and that will just sort of solve all of our problems and the idea as well at the end of the film that the shark is dead it's been killed and then problem solved like this is never going to be an issue ever, ever again, again you know um no one questions why this ginormous shark has come into i think it's fictional but it's meant to be in like rhode island isn't it it's like a no, it's meant to be
1: uh, i think it's actually meant to be in martha's vineyard area it's new england town they call new it new england yeah, yeah i think it's
0: supposed to be long island actually it's Long actually, that was, sorry, that, was the, that was the original premise of it was that Long Island was supposed to be represented. Yeah. Well, there's but- a place
1: oh. on Long Island called Amity and this this place is called Amityville. So people yeah. made that connection. Yeah.
3: yeah. So, so I guess that would sort of be my uh, take on the kind of villainy aspect. Um, it's obvious that Jaws is the villain of the film and you can't help but be terrified and be rooting for everyone trying to kill the shark. But if you were to take it from this more modern perspective and someone who's, you know, lived adjacent to sharks and been around them. You can kind of empathize with the shark. I don't know. I wouldn't want him to be killing everyone at the beach, but I wouldn't want the solution just to be for us to blow him up. Right. I saw a documentary of the making of the Jaws a while ago. And
2: I think there was a moment where Spielberg says that when he was reading the novel, he was just rooting for the shark to win because he said the characters were so unlikable. (laughs) So he was constantly talking about, oh you know what Jaws should be the good guy here. But obviously, I mean that's not how the story ends. And Kind of yeah
1: about. it's interesting you mentioned that because that in the novel hooper who's played by richard dreyfus he shows up he's the scientist that's fascinated because there, there's a shark spot as so he comes up and he ends up actually having an affair with chief brody's wife oh uh, in the in the book in peter Benchley's yeah. book and so in the movie she's just a lovely wife that's really supportive chief brody the funny thing about him he's from the city and he he doesn't swim it's the it's this obviously this irony about him and so actually i think brody's is somewhat we're empathetic towards him in the book Quint is is a really, I mean, he's a good old Navy guy, but uh, he's not that
0: likeable. Well, you know, there's a lot of similarities to this too in Moby Dick. You know, he's kind of like the Captain Ahab of the, he of the story. You know, it's an obvious comparison, but it, it definitely is worth mentioning. You know? And
1: he tells that wonderful story. He was on The Sinking of the Indianapolis, which is just, it's a true story after World War II or during World War II. And it sank in the middle of shark infested waters and no one was able to get they didn't know that it sank and they didn't come up them to like, I don't know what 72 hours. And I forget the line. He says like 800, 800 men went in, in, the water, 78 came out or whatever the number was. And they were all eaten by sharks and they're all sitting around. They're just being picked off one by one. And it's he, uh, Robert Shaw, and he tells a story. It's just like riveting. And so, yeah, he's got a beef with sharks. Cause he went through a really bad situation. I just want to mention one other scene. I love the scene where Brody's arguing with Mayor Vaughn in front of the big billboard. That's advertising Amityville. You know, it's a beautiful place to swim pictures. It's like a painted thing with a girl, but they've added, uh, the girl is now screaming help shark. And there's a big fin. And while they're arguing about whether they should tell the people that there's a shark out there, there's a, guy cleaning off all the graffiti, at the shark graffiti on the board. And I just think that's the mastery of this film is like these just moments and they, they, they shoot them so incredibly well. This film is is incredibly well made in terms of frame, all the film stuff, the, the use of sound, the framing and all these things. It's definitely, you know, obviously a crowd pleaser, uh, but it's phenomenally well made. Unlike Maverick, I saw that movie. And in that,
2: in that scene though, that you said also Hopper is also saying to the mayor, that that fin you see graffiti up there that's the size of the shark that's an accurate proportion of how big that shark is yeah the mayor is like oh yeah whatever whatever
0: you're saying i don't believe you uh if we don't have any more points about this then i think we covered it very well obviously are there any comparisons in these films that you would like to share
2: well if
1: nurse ratchet was in the water uh she would totally win the shark would not (laughs) eat her actually if he ate her he'd spit her out (laughs) because it's not digestible yeah. but i think she could scare the shark off
3: cold emotionless calculating composed single-minded yeah i don't know it's got one task or it's or it's single-minded in its task at least and it's sort of executes it without emotion and remorse and I like that they're ruthless in their own respective ways only i guess they'd be different about how they carry it out right? there's but certainly a
0: power carry- dynamic too i think there is a power dynamic the, the, you know the shark chose to destroy the boats and, and eat them, you know, there's, there's no nutritional value to the boat, to the, mm-hmm. the shark has no, you know, it, it's saying, Hey, you're trying to get me, I could get you. And I think yep. that's you could definitely throw in that power dynamic as part of the, uh, the comparison, you know,
2: but you could compare actually, I think a little bit more is the mayor to Nurse ratchet maybe because he, he's in a situation where he just doesn't really care about, what's going to happen he just cares about the rules the rules are like you said you know you're mm. talking about this the rules are summer's coming we have to make sure everything is good in the case of nurse ratchet the rules are you listen to me you listen to what i gotta do and everyone will be happy and i think it's the same situation between them right and also it's that power like desire of power that they both have that is kind of overwhelming them he's always wearing these like perfect suits and they're always like it's all about his image <laughs> his ego, you know what I'm talking about? He's always wearing these like colorful suits. It's a great image about himself and the beaches are great. Everything is safe. Everything is good because he wants to remain in power. He wants people to admire him and and respect him. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is uh, nurse Bratchett wants that power of over everybody wants, everybody has to respect her. You can't
3: go against it. You can't stop things. Yeah. There's a disruptor who comes in, who's disrupting their kind of control and their authority and their very uh, inflexible on it and they want to they want to regain it but i think nurse ratchet is much more capable and skillful and manages the entire time to sort of maintain that control whereas the mayor pretty much immediately just sort of gives it up i mean he's he's basically just a thorn in the side of a police officer the entire time and really doesn't do much other than in his way
0: i almost feel like quinn is more the nurse ratchet in this in the sense that the power dynamic between the shark and and him is so you know becomes such a, a understanding of how the shark is going to operate and and then eventually how the shark you know wins that battle you know maybe maybe the shark oh. is nurse ratchet
1: oh and so the shark is mcmurphy and McMurphy is killed in the end, and the sharks kill in the end.
0: Now we're stretching. <laughs> yeah, I don't right know, man. I'm just gonna... That could be. We could do another whole episode just on the.
1: I do think the nurse and the and the shark are kind of. Well, Vaughn is like definitely motivated by greed and all this stuff, but he's he's a little bit incompetent, and he's just wherever to get a dollar is, is what he's doing, and he's not he's not so on top of things. He's a bit of yeah. a town clown.
0: So. Yeah, well, he didn't, he that didn't take the job to be mayor so that he'd have to deal with real emergencies. That, that's yeah. not what you you know, he wanted to shake some hands and, and keep the economy up. That I was as far goes. as he wanted to go in that role. Yeah. You know? Mayor of a small
3: beach town in Long Island as well. I was amazed at how much power Brody has as the police officer, how many responsibilities there are. It seems like it's his job to do quite literally everything. I mean, he's he's the lifeguard at the beach, he's the police officer who has to do the, you know, grab the the victims, and then he's also communicating to the town and explaining to them the problem. There seems to be just this, he just has to do everything. And he's got the only person who helps him is a is a marine biologist i think he is all for killing the shark by the way yeah Yeah. i think that
0: uh you know brody is the poster child for defund the police you know (laughs) (laughs) he's got too many responsibilities we gotta you know we gotta take that down a little bit
1: something else is important about the films to an extent is there's very few female characters a lot of people call the shark female but we don't really know but uh, nurse ratchet and and the shark are female That basically all the other characters in both films are, are male
2: what doesn't the shark have a name i thought he had a name and wasn't it bruce bruce bruce, bruce named after spielberg's lawyer that yeah. was the that was the story is
1: that that's a male
0: it's, name don i don't think a male that's a name thing.
2: well
1: i'm sorry if anyone knows there's jaws 2 3 and 4 and there's no <laughs> only jaws 2 if it's a male because jaws had a had a little little kitten or whatever they're oh, called wait, is
2: that is that the, is that the premise and we have yeah it.
1: yeah it's the uh, oh my god two is terrible don't oh watch god. it but roy scheider's in it again it was a and
2: wow. then there's jaws 3d which is the first one of the first 3d <laughs> films ever made yeah.
0: <laughs> which is amazing mainstream i think mainstream 3d films are, yeah. yeah
1: yeah the jaws uh, franchise didn't work out quite as well as the star wars franchise
0: no, I don't think so. In fact, I think that if you added up all of the revenues from the the three sequels, I believe that uh, it didn't even equal half of the original movie. I have even less probably. Yeah. Well, I
3: did. There was no there was no sort of cliffhanger at the end. You know, there's not to be continued. It's just like we killed the shark, <laughs> and then you. It's so obvious they had to really. Yeah. How can out. we make
0: more money? That's the next question. We killed the shark, but how can we make more money? All right. Well, I think we covered this very well. There is some dispute, it seems, from the the true villain of this film. But are we looking at the politician? Are we looking at the capitalism? Are we looking at just simply the shark? You know, uh, we've left some uh, questions for our viewers to go back and, and watch this film. And maybe they, too, can can come up with what they think could be possible villains in this film. And I think in a more obvious segment of this, you could look at the uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and there's very little question about who the villain is in that film. But I think they're both very good films and I think we picked excellent villain themes for the 70s and I want to thank you guys for coming on. And as always, Don, I appreciate being able to host this with you and we look forward to our next segment of Cinema Around the Corner.
3: Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it.